Hello, and welcome to Why Philosophy. This is a podcast about philosophical topics and studying philosophy at BYU. In our episodes, we'll be doing a few things. First, we'll get to know professors and faculty in the BYU Philosophy Department. We'll talk about their interests, their research, and their classes. We'll also interview students and alumni who have gone off and started careers. We want this podcast to be, first and foremost, a fun and engaging show for anyone who's interested in philosophical topics. But we also want it to be a good resource for anyone thinking of majoring or minoring in philosophy, or are currently navigating the major. We will talk about how to be successful in philosophy, ideas for using your degree, and anything that will help us all move a little closer to the good life. So we hope you'll give it a listen and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Why Philosophy, the show where we discuss philosophical topics and get to know BYU philosophy faculty. My name is Connor Thomas. I'm a philosophy major at BYU, and I'll be one of your co-hosts today. And I'm the other co-host. My name is Zach Bright, and I am also a philosophy major at BYU. And today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Hatterley. Dr. Hatterley is an assistant professor at BYU. He got his PhD from University of Texas at Austin, and he has special interest in metaphysics and metaethics. Welcome to the show, Dr. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess we should just start with an introduction, yeah? So tell us a little about yourself, your upbringing, uh, what led you to philosophy ultimately, I guess. Um, I grew up in Idaho, mostly. I, I was actually born in Wyoming, but I grew up in Idaho. Really? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Is that really those are, fascinating? Those are two very <laughs> rural places. <laughs> yes, that's no. a good word. <laughs> I I grew up on a dairy farm. Okay. And um, and anyways, I I went to college at BYU Idaho. That's where I did my undergraduate degree. I got my bachelor's degree in English rather than philosophy. Uh, from there, I went to uh, Virginia Tech, did a master's degree in philosophy there. And then I went and did my PhD at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, I studied uh, moral um, philosophy, moral theory at both my master's and PhD. In particular, um, in my master's degree, I wrote my thesis on moral motivation. And in my dissertation, I wrote on the nature of moral laws, moral principles, whatever you want to call them. I like to call them moral laws. Mm-hmm because I think principle has kind of an epistemic feel. But anyways, <laughs> yeah, so there's a little, a little about me. Great. You know, you don't normally think of someone who grows up on a dairy farm becoming a philosopher. <laughs> so what happened there? I mean, is your family very philosophically minded or academic? I think that, you know, when you're sitting out there working with cows... You start asking existential questions, <laughs> like, what am I doing? <laughs> so, you know, phil- philosophy really comes naturally to a farmer. I actually think in other ways, in, in a, all seriousness, you do have a lot of time to think when you're a fa- working on a farm because you're out by yourself often working, doing something repetitive, or maybe you're out in a tractor and you're just going back and forth across a field. and. As a result, you do have lots of alone time to think and ponder. And so I, I think that farming, maybe it's not you know, the most natural place, but it's not a completely unnatural place to start um, as a philosopher. But philosophy 
was something I didn't know anything about until college. In fact, my first philosophy class was kind of an accident that I took it. I, I wanted to fulfill my letters GE, and there were two options, I think. I think this is the GE I was trying to fulfill. <laughs> it's been a while. This uh, is BYU-Idaho? Yeah. So one option was psychology and one option was philosophy at that, that semester that would work with my schedule. And so I thought, I don't know what philosophy is, but I definitely don't want to take that. So I signed up for psychology. (laughs) (laughs) And I went to the class on the first day, and the teacher was fine. The class seemed like it would be fine as far as the content. Whoops. But I, I basically didn't want to be in the class because the students were really rambunctious, which seems like a strange thing, but I was really bugged for whatever reason. So I was like, I'm not taking that class. So I went and found the philosophy class, added it to my schedule that day, and it happened to be that afternoon. So I went to the philosophy class, and it honestly, it did seem a little weird at first. Like the teacher seemed a little weird. Hopefully the teacher never listens to this. I'm not going <laughs> to say who it was. Um, and I sat in it, and it seemed fine, um, but I decided to stick with it. It worked with my schedule fine, and it seemed moderately interesting. So that was my first philosophy class, but the class that really caught my attention was uh, logic. It was uh, basically the two, 205 class. What happened was I'd taken this, full, the, it was philosophy 110, my first philosophy class, and I liked it okay. I liked it enough that I thought, you know, I've got an elective. Maybe I'll take another philosophy class just for the heck of it. <laughs> and so I looked at what classes were available, and they all... I don't even remember what they were, but none of them really struck me as super interesting at the time. But there was this logic class, and I thought, well, I don't know what logic is exactly, but I want to be a you know logical person. <laughs> so I signed up for this class. And honestly, the first day of that class was really important. I don't know if I would have stuck with philosophy if it wasn't for the way that class caught me, which was I got to class, um, and luckily I had already signed up, but there were 60 people in the room. And it was a room for 40 people. So there were people standing around on the walls. I was sitting on the floor. By, there was a piano in the room. Only at BYU-Idaho or BYU, would that be? Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyways, <laughs> and so I was sitting on the floor. And the professor was like, okay, so we're going to be talking about logic. And let me show you what you're going to be able to do at the end of the semester. And he started doing a proof in first-order logic. And it looked real mathy, you know. And um, so he went through that for about five minutes and then... A student raised her hand and she said, "Um, Professor, if you know you're not going to continue taking this class, can you just leave right now? And he was like, be my guest. And like 10 people stood up and walked out of the room immediately. So I was like, oh, I'm going to finish this class. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we started with the 60 students. We got down to like 50 that, that first day. By the end of the semester, there were 15 of us left. Holy cow. And... I don't know why, but that was like, you know, not like being on the beaches of D-Day, but it was like, you know, there was something that like it galvanized <laughs> yeah. this group of people. We were like, we are the the hardened. <laughs> if you've taken 205, you're like, that's not that impressive. But anyways, at the time, I, I was know. like, I thought that I was pretty cool. Um, I didn't think I was cool, but I, I was proud to have finished this class, be one of the few people that managed to get through the whole course. Anyways, so I after that I was like I think I might minor in philosophy, so so I did, and that's and the rest is history, I guess. 
That's awesome. Logic is definitely not a most comfortable start for most people in philosophy. <laughs> it scared me the first time. I was like, this is not philosophy. This is not what I signed up for. <laughs> That's a really cool start. You um, took logic from me. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So a little longer backstory. <laughs> <laughs> like, Dr. Hadley's the worst. But maybe just throughout your journey in philosophy, who were who would you say would be some important key mentors um, in your philosophical journey? Yeah, I think my, the one, one professor I had at BYU-Idaho, his name is Ross Barron. He still teaches there, actually. Oh, really? Um, he was a really significant mentor for me. Um, he was a very exciting, fun teacher. He made philosophy really fun and exciting, but very energetic and super smart and was kind enough to I, – I bugged him so much. I <laughs> was constantly going to his office hours. I'm sure I was so obnoxious, but I was just so enthusiastic, and he really mentored me and, and helped me. Now, there's one other person that I know of that has gone on to graduate school in philosophy from BYU-Idaho, but I only know of one other person ever that has done that, that didn't transfer to BYU or somewhere else yeah. before doing that. And so I think I was sort of a strange case that I stayed there, minored in philosophy only, and then went on. One thing I'll say, I had a, a few professors in English that also were serious mentors and were philosophical, mm. even though they weren't teaching philosophy that were important. Uh, one was Eric Devinier, who actually was the reason I changed my major to English. That's another story. Um, another professor was Kip Hartvikson, who doesn't teach there anymore. He's retired. But both taught literature in ways that brought out the kind of philosophical questions. And so I think they kind of taught me philosophy as well, in a way. My master's degree, my master's advisor was a philosopher named Tristram McPherson, and he was just an amazing uh, mentor. He still is. I, I still talk to him. I just talked to him last week. But he is just an incredible philosopher, first of all, but he was incredibly generous with his time. He would, like, stop by in my graduate office you knock on the door and be like, "Hey, Derek, we haven't talked for a couple of weeks. I've got four hours on Friday. Do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want those four hours?" Wow! And I'd be like, "Okay, yes, that's what I want." Yeah. Uh, and he, and he would just kick back. He would lay down. He had a couch in his office. He would lay down on his couch and he would put his hands under his head and he'd say, "Okay, just tell me what you're working on." And, no way! And he, yeah, he was just a really cool guy. And then I had some really great philosophers I worked with at University of Texas at Austin. Uh, my two advisors were Jonathan Dancy, who does uh, moral philosophy in particular. <laughs> that wasn't supposed to be a joke, but it is, because he's, <laughs> he's considered the father of particularism. <laughs> and then, uh, and, he, and he's really a, uh, a wonderful human being. And then, and then John Litland was my other kind of advisor. Um, he focuses more on metaphysics and logic, but the two of them were very generous with their time. There was, there's so many people, you know, the list could go on and on. I've had a lot of great mentors and people that have been generous and, and helpful. Great. So, so how would you describe your philosophical interests today? My interests are very broad, actually. I, in some ways, I think of myself as a jack-of-all-trades in philosophy, which I'm not sure if that's good or bad. It might be bad. <laughs> but... I 
I have strong interests in metaphysics, epistemology, ethics, obviously. I mean, metaethics is in some ways, the reason it, I was drawn to metaethics is because it's sort of the intersection of all these er different mm -hmm. areas of philosophy. Um, philosophy of language, um, philosophy of religion. I mean, I just like philosophy. I, I've been one of these people that doesn't really get bored by philosophy, any part of philosophy. And I think that that's not rare, but it's not the way it is for everybody. Um, mm. And so I think that's that's really a part of the reason metaethics was so attractive to me. It was just because it was a place where I could see I could just be doing all kinds of different philosophy. On the other hand, it makes metaethics extremely hard because you have to learn <laughs> about a lot of different areas of philosophy and be competent in lots of different areas of philosophy. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So, yeah, I, I like a lot of things. One thing I will say I'm not strong in, but it's not because I'm not interested in it, but it's just kind of an accident of the research I've done and my coursework throughout my education is that I'm not strong in like ancient philosophy. Mm. Um, I'm like an undergraduate basically when it comes to ancient philosophy. Maybe someday I'll be teaching an ancient philosophy class and I'll regret saying all these things. But <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, yeah. So that's an area that I, I am interested in, but I just don't have good training in ancient philosophy. So if someone were to metaethics, we'll just say that's your main interest. How would you recommend to an undergraduate if that were something you were to like sell to them, like metaethics is the coolest. Like, how would they start? Where would you recommend, like, yeah. paper, book, or? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would say is metaethics is the coolest. <laughs> it truly is, <laughs> and people are doing metaethics or they have metaethical beliefs that they don't realize are metaethics. But the one common debate in our public discourse is about moral relativism. Mm. Yeah, at least at least in our moral discourse within the church, moral relativism is coming up all the time. This is a meta-ethical view. Um, how is it coming up in our moral discourse? How is it coming up in the church? Would you say? Oh, I mean, I see, I see general conference talks. People talk about moral relativism. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't come up every you know, every <laughs> general conference, but it comes up often enough that I think it's something that many people have an opinion about, whether or not it's well informed. Um, they think they have an opinion about whether or not moral relativism is true or moral objectivism or moral absolutism or something. This, so these are meta-ethical views. They're views about the nature of morality. Um, so when you think about meta-ethics, what you're trying to get at is the kind of more, uh, maybe a level of abstraction away from like, what should I do? It's questions like, what does it mean to say that you ought to do something. Um, so there's the philosophical, or sorry, philosophy of language sorts of angles, like what what's the semantics of the term ought um, and these sorts of things. What What is uh, an expression of a sentence like, I ought to do X? Um, what What is going on there? Is it like any other sort of descriptive sentence or is it kind of a special sort of thing, its own kind of beast? There are questions about epistemology, like how do I know what I ought to do? That's uh, that's metaethics too, moral epistemology. What what I what ought I to do has there's a kind of question like what I ought to do in this situation, but there's the how do I know what I ought to do? Um, it's super hard to figure that out, and it's it's a question that so many people have thought about these things already. It's yeah. not like so. So I found metaethics was so natural because 
I was already thinking about the meta-ethical questions long before I ever discovered philosophy. But it wasn't because I was trying to do philosophy. I was just trying to live life. And so I think we sort of naturally start asking epistemological questions or philosophy of language questions or metaphysics questions. More relativism is a kind of metaphysics-y sort of mm-hmm. um, question in regards to ethics. So I think if you're living life as a human being, you're interested already. <laughs> um, so like, you know, come and learn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I guess as as an undergraduate at BYU, if you're trying to get into metaethics, because it seems like, like you said, there are so many aspects involved with that, metaphysics, philosophy of language, epistemology. Um, how would you recommend a BYU undergraduate like coming in get to that end goal of being well-versed enough to study metaphysics, if that makes sense. Or metaethics. Metaethics, yeah, sorry. Um, I think really if you want to study metaethics, you should try to get a well-rounded philosophical education. Obviously, you want to take an ethics class (laughs) Um, since it's about ethics. (laughs) Um, So any ethics you can take will be really great. But taking your philosophy of language class, taking a metaphysics class, taking an epistemology class, um, philosophy of mind. There's all kinds of stuff about like, you know, there's a view that people have that the way we come to know the moral truths is by perceiving them. Mm -hmm. So there's this view that we have kind of a special moral perception. That's a philosophical question that really depends on how we think about the mind. Like what does it mean to perceive what role do concepts have in perception and all these, you know, on and on and on. So, uh, Do you uh, do you think that's right, we perceive? I do wrong. actually think that. I'm attracted to that view. Okay. All right. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to think for sure, but uh, I do think there's something um, very appealing about the claim that we do in some sense. And it, I don't know what sense. Uh, we perceive things. Actually, I started writing my dissertation on this topic when oh. I first started my dissertation. And Zach heard about this just <laughs> yesterday, but but it turns out it's, it's such a difficult topic to get a grip on um, that I thought maybe as a you know graduate student, it wasn't the best thing for me to try to tackle right off the bat because the literature is vast for one thing and I mean about like concepts and perception and stuff that literature is just vast so getting a grip on it was hard but also there's just no like common terminology people use all these different kinds of jargon just like that just seems specific to the individual philosopher that you're reading at a given time so it was just it's just a big mess Uh, and I would like to go back and think more about that now so that's a project that I have kind of it's on the shelf waiting to, you know, come down and get worked on. But but yeah, I am attracted to that view. I can also verify it is incredibly complicated yeah. <laughs> the literature surrounding like concepts and yeah. <laughs> perceptions of them. But yeah. Probably goes back a long time. Yeah. It yeah. Does. yeah. What advice do you have for um any undergrads studying philosophy more generally? That's a good question. I mean, so let me ask you a follow-up question so you can clarify your Absolutely. Um, so there's advice about, like, what should you do with a degree in philosophy. There might be advice about, like, what should you do while you're getting your degree um, in regards to your 
philosophical development, might be in regards to your job preparation, it might be in regards to your spiritual formation. So I, can you say more about what you had in mind? Yeah, let's do a couple of those. First, I'll frame it like this. In a given philosophy class, maybe one of your classes, for example, what's some advice you have for how to be successful in that class? I think the number one piece of advice I would give is ask the question that you have, even though it sounds stupid. That is great <laughs> advice. Yeah. That is really... I. I am pretty reserved about that. that. Yeah, that's normally when I'm in class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't want to look Let me. That, so when I started graduate school, I decided I wanted to learn more than I wanted to look smart. <laughs> and yeah. it turns out most of us want to look smart more than we want to learn it in our actual practice. <laughs> and so I had to very consciously, like every day when I'm sitting there in a, a graduate seminar, tell myself, I'm here to learn, not to look smart. And so I did ask questions that were dumb, frankly, (laughs) dumb questions. Like, here's a question that I have asked in a graduate course. Let's hear it. Um, I have no idea what's going on. Could you just re-explain the last five minutes? (laughs) (laughs) That's a bad question. (laughs) What was the reaction from the lecture? The professor was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and everybody else in the class was like, thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's good advice. One thing I know, some philosophers actually do this with um, conference talks or other things that they're, they're in. They, they say, I have to ask two questions. Um, I'm going to ask two questions. So if you, if you can give yourself, if you, if you have a hard time asking a question, make a goal for yourself. I'm going to ask at least one question in class every day. And first of all, that's going to get your mind into the mode of inquiring and trying to understand what's going on. So you can ask the best question you can. But it's also going to get you into a habit where you just, you're comfortable asking questions. And so, yeah, sometimes you might look like a fool. Sometimes you might be really annoying to everybody around you. But you're there for your education, mm. and you're not there to look cool. You're not there to look smart. I mean, why go to school for that? That's the that, Those are the rewards you get after school. <laughs> That's really good. When you're an assistant professor, then you get those rewards. No, no, I don't get those rewards yet. <laughs> so, so that's one, I guess, one piece of advice. Another piece of advice I would give to people, depending on what it is that they want to do, but is to try to make a connection with the professor. Go to an office hour and talk with them. It, just do it one time, just so that your professor knows who you are, they recognize your face. Some students are really good about this. At the very beginning of the semester, they'll just show up to an office hour and they'll say, I just wanted to introduce myself, you know, whatever. I think that's a great thing to do because then... As a professor, that person stands out a little bit more in that classroom, that sea of faces that I'm looking at. And someday, very likely, you might want me to be a reference for you or a letter writer or something like that. And if I'm like, I, I, this has happened. People have asked me to write a letter of recommendation for them, and I do not know who they are. Oh my God. Like, I've gotten emails from students like, would you be willing to write me a letter of recommendation? I'm like, I have never seen this person's name in my life. I cannot remember. And so then I have to try to figure out who they are. You don't want you don't want to be in that situation. Yeah. You want your professor to know who you are. So I guess 
something I struggled with. Like, I, I got that advice to, like, go to office hours and stuff. And I did this with you, if you remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I show up, and I never know, like, what to do. Like, are you, is it okay to just introduce yourself and just be yeah. like, hi, I'm here? Or, I don't know, is there a way that stands out to you for what certain students do in your office hours? No, I think that's fine if that's all you, if that's all you can do. Um, you can also, if you have a question that you're like, I would like to ask a philosopher this kind of question. You could ask that. Yeah. Um, you know, that that wouldn't be bad. But I don't think you should feel like there's any expectation that you do anything in particular. Just yeah. sh- just show up. Um, that's the main piece of advice. Obviously, if you if you come with a question or something something interesting to ask the professor, then you know the more is the better. But yeah. But yeah, just show up. So, do you have any tips for reading or writing philosophy? Yeah, I think the first thing I would say is to read slowly, very slowly. Yeah, that's good advice. <laughs> I, I actually decided one day, I was thinking about this because students were telling me that they were taking a long time reading, and I was like, hmm, I wonder how long it takes me to read a page of philosophy, say. So I read a few pages and, and time myself. And when I'm reading philosophy, really reading it, trying to understand it, I it takes me about eight minutes per page. So I think you really have to slow down. Now, that was years ago. So it could be different now. Uh, I actually suspect I can read a little faster. But I think if it takes somebody that kind of knows what they're doing that long to read a page, (laughs) if you really want to understand it, you should slow down and take your time. And I think be honest with yourself. If you don't know what you just read, then you didn't read it in any meaningful sense. You just let your eyes pass over it. So be honest with yourself. Ask yourself, you know, do I understand what's going on? Um, I think engaging with the text by writing, annotating. I mean, these aren't these aren't really anything novel or new, but I think that can help. And then I think it's useful to set the text aside and try your very best to write a summary just like a short paragraph, what are the main points and what are the main kind of argumentative um, moves that they made? And if you just finish reading something and you're struggling to do that, then you probably need to go back and reread it, which is Mm -hmm. also, I guess, tip number two, reread. That's okay. Tip number three, don't feel like you have to read everything. So when I was an undergraduate, I read every page of every reading assignment that I was ever assigned. No, in every class. In every class? Yeah. I cannot say that. <laughs> when I got into my master's degree, the amount of reading just got much larger. Mm-hmm. And so I I just couldn't believe, how are my classmates, how is everybody reading all this? I, like, yeah, sometimes we'd have, like, you know, I'd have a week with 900 pages of philosophy. Well, that's what I thought it was. And that was that was insurmountable. I mean, think about it. If you're taking eight minutes per page, yeah. 900 pages. I don't know what the math is, but that's a lot of minutes. <laughs> so I, I thought this is impossible. So I talked to my advisor. I said, what am I supposed to do? How, you know, how can I read better and whatever? And he said, well, tell me what you're doing now. And I said, well, I'm reading everything and I'm, try- I'm trying to read everything. And he said, that's your first mistake. He said, <laughs> I would rather have, you know, in a, in a graduate seminar, there's 10 students or something, say. He said, I'd rather have five students that really read that reading that week and five that didn't because they're reading the next week's reading 
than have 10 that read it poorly because they're just trying to read everything all the time. Mm. So I think that's not me trying to say, like, don't do your assignments, but think about how to prioritize things. Look at what's on the syllabus. What's important to you? What do you want to know? Um, and make sure you prioritize that when you have to figure out how to balance and schedule your reading time. It might also depend on the teacher, the class, you know, how they interact with the students in the class, uh, how detailed or close they want you to be reading. So, you know, if, if I was in a Hume class, say, I might want to read more carefully because that is a class where attending to the details in the text might matter because we're doing, inter we're doing kind of historical interpretation of the text. But if I'm in, you know, my metaphysics class, well, unfortunately, I have a, a mechanism, so you have to read. But <laughs> <laughs> if I didn't have that, I would say, you know, do your best to try to understand what are the big picture things, then move on, because you're not going to be able to understand everything that you're going to read in that class. And it would be better if you did half of the readings and really put in the time on those than did all of the readings and just struggled to understand any of them. I think it would be more valuable for you, more valuable for your contribution to the class. So I think those are the things I'd say about reading. Do you have any follow-up on any of that? Wait, what about writing? Yeah, so writing, I think the thing I would say with writing is just write a lot. Practice. You get better if you practice and and share. Be willing to share. I, I guess one thing is don't feel like you have to read everything in order to start writing. You don't mm -hmm. have to understand everything, and you won't until you start writing. And in fact, maybe this is a tip for reading too, if you're – actively engaged in a writing project, you will read better and more profitably. You'll understand, you'll have a reason to read, your brain will be engaged in trying to understand things in a way that it just doesn't when it's just sort of more passive. I, When I'm writing, I find my reading suddenly sharpens up, even now. I suddenly understand things, I see how the argument fits together better when I'm writing something that's related. So don't wait to start writing. Start writing right away. If at the beginning of the semester, start thinking about things that are interesting to you. And as soon as you come up on something that you think, ooh, that would be a cool project to write about or a cool paper, then start drafting an outline. Start throwing things together. And all of a sudden, your readings in that class are just going to start crystallizing because they're going to become relevant to whatever it is that you're writing. And it will get really exciting. And then... It helps you in your class participation because then you can like participate with a purpose. It's not just to like ask a question. It's not just to like say something in the class. It's now I want to try to figure out, I'm trying to figure this thing out. And we read this thing and I think there's a connection. Can you help me work through this in class? With, you know, get the professor and the other students to help you do some of the thinking so it becomes more of a group kind of project, collaborative project of thinking through arguments together. There's some thoughts. Yeah, yeah, those are some uh, insightful helpful. points. Yeah. Yeah. If we could shift, I think it'd be interesting um, to get your perspective on what you do with philosophy post-undergraduate. Yeah. Um, I, I, I guess twofold. If someone were wanting to pursue philosophy further, how should they go about doing that? And then two, maybe they don't want to. What are some options right. for them? And and probably most are. people are in the latter. Yeah, case, probably. Right? Yeah. Um, if you want to do philosophy, then bug your professors a lot. Like they, <laughs> if you want to do philosophy, they shouldn't just know who you are. They should be like, 
very familiar with you. <laughs> they should know everything about what you're doing in your philosophical work because it is so insanely competitive. I actually don't know of something that's more competitive than philosophy. I'm sure there are th- there yeah. are you know jobs and uh, industries and things that are more competitive, but I don't know of any myself. So you just have to kind of go in knowing you're entering into a world of intense competition with brilliant people and you need good luck and you need to be smart and you need to like make sure you make connections and, and leverage those connections um, to help you. So that's that's the just really quick advice mm-hmm. for those people. The advice for other people is that there a lot of what you can do is what you can do with lots of other degrees. I mean, obviously, you're not going to go and just automatically start doing an engineering job. Like you need to get a degree <laughs> in engineering to do that. Yeah. Um, so maybe dual major if, if that's what you're interested in. Um, but lots of jobs in business, even going into medicine, philosophy is a, a, a desirable degree for medical schools. I don't know if people know this. This is like yeah, that's interesting. It's not actually like a secret or something. You go, you go to a medical, go to the local medical school, and ask them if they think they would be interested in in bringing in some philosophy majors, and they will say, "Heck yes, we're sick of biology majors." I'm, that's true. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, so, I think that you know there are lots and lots of opportunities. One thing you have to learn, and I think you need to take seriously, is how to sell your skills. Um, mm-hmm. And we don't always do the best at that in, the, you know, in a philosophy classroom. We're not thinking like, how are you going to sell the skills that you're developing here <laughs> on a resume so you can get a job, you know, at Adobe or something. <laughs> but I think there you are developing skills and uh, you can leverage those skills if you can learn how to talk about it. So I think one way is like start working on your resume, start working on, t- t- you know, tell people what you do and, and try to sell it to people, tr- you know. Don't just when people say like, so what are you going to do with philosophy? You know, try to come off confident and and give them the pitch, even though it might be really uh, crummy at the beginning. What you're doing is you're practicing your ability to articulate. And after seven or eight people ask you that question, by the way, if you major in philosophy, everybody's going to ask you that all the time, all the time. And, and a lot of people are going to be skeptical. So, you know, you're going to get lots of opportunities to practice. So just take it as a, a practice opportunity. Think to yourself, okay, my uncle doesn't really matter in terms of my job prospects <laughs> probably for them. You know, maybe maybe they will actually. But but um, if I can practice with my uncle, then when I'm, you know, trying to get that job interview at X business, I'm going to have a much better chance of articulating on a resume in a way that looks attractive or – if I get that interview, I'm going to be able to sell the skill set that I have. And you don't have to be talking about philosophy all day. Talk about the skills, the actual marketable skills that you have, which you do have a lot of in philosophy. You're going to learn how to write and do analysis and thinking better than a lot of other majors. Um, you're going to learn how to to handle certain kinds of tension. Philosophy is sometimes, you know, argumentative. And so yeah. you're going to learn how to navigate these kinds of things in a way that gives you a, a leg up. But you're also going to have a way of like approaching problems systematically that I think is rare to get in other degrees. So you really are getting a unique skill set that I think lots of people are interested in. Yeah, that's that's great advice. Um, you mentioned earlier 
kind of the relationship between studying philosophy and uh, spirituality. Mm. And I want to ask about that a little bit. My experience studying philosophy and being a religious person is that it's complicated some of my religious views in certain ways, but it's also given me tools to kind of deal with that complexity um, in ways that I think have been pretty helpful. So what would you say, you know, if someone asked you how they can study philosophy and, and help it, you know, help it help them navigate their faith? I do think philosophy is good for this. I, I think a lot of people believe that philosophy is going to destroy their faith or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty that widespread a, yeah. view. <laughs> yeah. I'm not entirely sure why people think that. Maybe it's this philosophies of men mingled with scripture <laughs> yeah, idea. Yeah, like yeah. um, I think that philosophy, for my, you know, personally, it has done nothing but sort of enrich and enliven my own faith and my understanding of the gospel. But I can also see how philosophy does equip you with tools to think critically, and you could you could use your tools in ways that might sort of lead you out of the door of the faith. So I don't think it's like crazy to think that philosophy could play a role in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that someone who's struggling with their faith should think that uh, they should avoid philosophy because they're going to get some tools, but also they may not find philosophy to be the solution to all their questions. You know, it, it itself it doesn't answer all the questions. In fact, I think maybe importantly, philosophy sometimes merely sharpens our questions. I, in my experience, philosophy can help people, and I think it attracts people often who have a temperament of already being the kind of questioning type of person. But I think the more you learn about all the variety of different views and you see that there are pros and cons to every position and that, yeah, you might have in your faith tradition, you might encounter our faith tradition. I guess I, I don't I guess our audience probably is mostly people in our faith tradition. You know, in our faith tradition, we do have questions and there are certain kinds of worries that are unique to our faith tradition that one might have. And what I've learned from philosophy is that's okay because everybody's got questions and worries for whatever, whether it's a faith tradition or whether it's atheism or agnosticism or whatever, you're, you're, wherever you're coming from, you're going to have some hard questions to answer. And I think, you know, for me, this seems like it answers the most questions, even though it's got some open questions. Um, and in maybe answers questions in the most satisfying way. I don't know. There's a start. Yeah. Do you have an example of a religious question that you think philosophy can really help help you navigate? When we ask a question about how we can know that, say, Joseph Smith's a prophet or that God lives or that Jesus Christ is a resurrected being or something, we're asked. There's a there's a general epistemic question in the background about knowledge and what um, what it takes to get knowledge uh, you know what what justifies our believing something to be true and there's so much to say about that question yeah. <laughs> but seeing how we can break these things up into smaller chunks and understand the moving parts can get you into a situation where you can understand better 
how you might approach answering a question that's more specific, like, how do I know that Jesus Christ was resurrected? And then you're in a better position to take what evidences there are that he was resurrected and evaluate them in a way that is not just sort of wishful thinking or something like that, where you're like, oh, man, wouldn't it be nice if Jesus Christ was resurrected? Well, that's not evidence. That's not evidence that Jesus Christ was resurrected, as much as that would be great if it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so once you are in a position to more clearly see which questions uh, to ask, so that's what I mean kind of by sharpening the question, you are able to really get down into the details on what kinds of information you need to be justified in believing that Jesus Christ is resurrected. Um, and so an epistemology class can give you some of those tools, uh, or a religious epistemology class specifically might you know, kind of help focus on something like that. So that, I think that's an example where some of the philosophical, I'm still talking abstractly, but some of the philosophical tools could help you answer a, a religious question that you might have. They're not going to give you the answer, um, but they're going to help you sort of as you navigate towards getting an answer. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> if we could kind of, if you're okay, shifting gears. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of just want to ask some more general personal questions. So oh, great. Yes. <laughs> if you could recommend only three books outside of scripture, what three books <laughs> would you recommend? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think it changes, you know, year by year. I have like books that are on my mind. So these are some books that are on my mind now, but maybe they wouldn't be the books I'd answer, you know, a year ago or maybe in another year. I don't know. Outside of scripture, I, this is the English major in me maybe. Kind of, <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I would say uh, Shakespeare's Hamlet. I, I love Hamlet. It's a masterpiece and so many interesting things going on. Marilyn Robinson's Gilead which is a story about a pastor who is about to die and he's writing letters to his young son so that he'll have been able to transmit some of the things he would have taught him as he gets older. It's absolutely stunning book. And then for my third book, at least this is a book that has really had a profound influence on me, and that is a book called Lilith by George MacDonald. And it's a very strange little book. <laughs> I've recommended it to some people that really didn't like it. <laughs> but I think it's just a beautiful little book, and there's a lot of treasures in there. So I, would, I think those are three books. So Shakespeare's Hamlet, Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, and uh, George MacDonald's Lilith. Nice. I haven't heard of two of those. <laughs> yeah. Please say you heard of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Hey, Hamlet, we're good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know Hamlet. <laughs> um, maybe what are some of your personal hobbies outside of philosophy, obviously? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I do read a lot. So reading is a hobby. I um, run, not as much as I'd like to, but I do run. I love trail running in specific. I don't really like running, running on roads. That seems far less interesting. Uh, I disagree. <laughs> it's just much more interesting if you could fall and die, you know? <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> if there's a cliff next to you, it's just funner. <laughs> then I, I do a lot with music. So I play the piano. I try my hand at composition and music production. 
I think those are probably three of my biggest hobbies. Maybe in movies. I really like movies. Those are the, my four hobbies and my family. They're not a hobby, though, so it doesn't seem like, yeah. it, seem like it counted. My wife's like, so this is a hobby for you, huh? <laughs> it's just a <laughs> Do you have a favorite movie? Maybe I would say The Tree of Life. Oh, yeah, oh. you've mentioned that, yeah. Terrence Malick, Malick, I don't know how to say his name. I've heard Malick. Um, that might be my favorite movie. It's an emotional one. Yeah, it's a good movie. Also, I've recommended that to a lot of people that have hated it. So, <laughs> you know, if you watch that movie, you're going to be like, man, Hatterley is one weird dude. <laughs> but it's a great it's a great film. I love it. I, I, I really like science fiction. Um, so I kind of, my mom was a big science fiction fantasy buff. So I think I kind of inherited that from her. So I like science fiction films. Which one? How would you? Yeah, yeah. Which ones? Let's do that. Start with that. I've really liked, um, for example, the m- most recent Dune movie. I thought was a, a masterpiece. It was spectacular. Uh, yeah, I think so. You might think of there's there's different genres of science fiction. I think I like kind of the more cerebral, because I like the more cerebral yeah. everything. <laughs> I can't imagine why. <laughs> um, and so I like sort of a more cerebral science fiction. I like slow pacing, um, thoughtful. I, I, I mean, I enjoy uh, fast-paced action science fiction as much as the next person, but I, those aren't the, the kind that draw me to them. I want to talk about uh, some of your philosophical positions that you hold. Mm-hmm. So you describe yourself as a moral realist. Yeah. Could you, for anybody who doesn't know who's listening, describe the position and say why you're convinced of that position. Yeah. So the moral realist says a couple of things. One, they say that when we make a moral judgment, that moral judgment is has something to do with our beliefs or something like that. And that some of them are true or false, and it turns out that some of them are true. And then sometimes there's this other view that's included with moral realism that we know some of the moral truths. So it's not just that there are some moral truths out there to be known, but we just don't know any of them because we're bad at knowing the moral truths, but that we know at least some of them. And, and there's one more part of moral realism, which is that these moral truths are mind independent. And that means they're somehow, regardless of what we think about them, what our attitudes are towards the moral truths, they still hold. So everybody in the world, say, could think that it's, just great to like kick puppies in the ribs for fun Mm -hmm. but it would still be wrong even if everybody thought it was the case so that's kind of what moral realism is in a nutshell and some of the reasons that we might be moral realists is one it just that seems very plausible given the ways we talk about morality so we think that we have a kind of antecedent commitment to it so you know, one of the one of the strategies I would use in a in an ethics class, say, to try to see what students where they actually stand, because a lot of students will come in and they're like, oh, you know, I think we're, tr-, you know, they want to be tolerant, they want to um, sort of recognize that other people have legitimate claim to have knowledge about morality or have their own individual experiences, and so they want to be tolerant of that. And so often they'll come into a, the ethics classroom thinking something like, well, we, we each have our own kind of morality. And by that, they could mean two things. One is that we each believe different things and we're all entitled to our own beliefs. And I 
I agree with that mm-hmm. just fine. But they could mean as something else, which is often called a moral relativism, which is the view that um, what is right or wrong sort of is dependent on the community or the person. And what I'll do is I'll say, well, just imagine that you go and you are part of a community where people think torturing infants for fun is wrong. (laughs) And nobody wants to say that's okay. Everybody wants to say no, that, that, you know, when it comes to some other issues, yeah, maybe it's relative. But when it comes to torturing infants for fun, everybody wants to say that's bad. And they want to say, no, it, they're wrong. The people that think that that's okay, they're wrong. And so they're committed to rejecting moral relativism and, and thereby are committed, at least depending on some other views that they might have, um, to something like moral realism. So there's a kind of strong, I, for lack of a better word, there's a strong intuition that many people have that moral realism is the right view. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots more detail we could go into, but that's a kind of first pass. Yeah. What would that look like? Because you said at the beginning, there's kind of a divide, if, if I understood right, there's a divide between those who think we can know what that mind-independent morality is, and then there are those who say... They're out there, but maybe we don't know it. And that's more of an epistemological. Yeah, claim. right. So epistemology is the branch of philosophy that studies how we know things or what, you know, how we are justified in believing things or whatever. Yeah. So I guess, one, where do you stand on that? Yeah. So I do think that we can know some of the moral truths. I don't know if we're in a good position to get access to all of them. I think we come to know moral truths in a variety of ways. One way that we can, uh, we can know any truth probably is by getting testimony from a reliable source. So say, in, you know, on our view, we might think that God has some special knowledge about morality, and if he reveals that to a person, then we m- might think of that as a form of testimony. It's God's testimony or something like that. Or we find somebody that is uh, a moral expert and if they give us testimony that we should do X, then, then we should. That's uh, some evidence in favor of doing the thing. But you might wonder, how do we get it besides testimony? How do we learn what's right and wrong uh, outside of that? I like to think that we actually can, in a sense, perceive what's right and wrong. Mm-hmm. in something analogous to the way that we perceive other sorts of kind of complicated perceptual things like the fact that, you know, we're sitting in this room with a a piano keyboard. I can perceive that. And that's a pretty complex concept, a a keyboard, if you think about it. There's a lot built into that concept. So it's not just that I'm seeing, you know, colors and lines and shapes, which we might think of as kind of the primary qualities that this has, but I actually can see more than just that. There's a sense in which I see the keyboard. And I think that we have something analogous to that functions um, for morality, where we can see, you know, one of the famous examples is of a, a woman backhanding her child in the in the parking lot of a supermarket or something. When we see the woman kind of viciously backhanding her child, we just see something wrong just took place. You know, we that was wrong. Mm. Um, and we don't need someone to like go through some big <laughs> utilitarian calculus or something <laughs> like that. We just 
bam, it's there. So that's that's one way. Now, it depends, you know, your first order theory, like utilitarianism or Kantian deontology or something, these are all going to give you an epistemology. So depending on what your specific view is on the first order theory, you might actually get a different epistemology. But I kind of like this perceptual account. Although I, I, I have to admit, it's very complicated and has some problems. Yeah, I think, so what that reminds me of, the perceptual account, is an idea that comes from Hume, which is the is-ought um, kind of argument, mm-hmm. where Hume says, you know, we go around and we get these this stimuli of everything that happens around us. Some of them we don't like and some of them we do like. And when we see something we don't like, we see an is, right? Like we see someone get murdered mm-hmm. and we're like, oh, I did not like that stimuli. We get an ought out of it. And what Hume says, and this is really his insight here, is there's no logical connection between the is and the ought. You know, it's nothing that, that makes it a legitimate ought. It just is an is, and it's something we don't like. And mm-hmm. we, don't, we can't go beyond that. And so what you're saying, it seems like, is that there's some kind of logical connection. It depends on what it is. I don't think that, so, you know, there's like these fallacies where you say, look, it's natural for us to be angry at each other when we <laughs> scroll through our Facebook feed or something. <laughs> and so that's what we ought to do is to be angry at each other. Sure. Well, that's not, that's not entirely the case. And yeah, this yeah. is the kind of thing that Hume might worry about. But I think that there are other things where we can think about um, things in terms of reasons. So there are certain things that give us reason to believe that say there's a keyboard in the room. I have I have a reason to believe it. What is the reason? That I can see a keyboard. And I think that the same goes for morality. There are reasons that we can, that are sort of, they're observable in some sense. Um, and those give us reason to believe, to form moral beliefs. And so the reasons are, maybe they're slightly different in kind, but they're not entirely alien to each other. It's not so this fact-value distinction that Hume is pointing at, I think, is not as doesn't have as big a divide between the two as I think Hume thinks. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I think there's more to it. But you know, this is just my preferred epistemology. I'd be happy to you know to revise it, you know, in light of um, further thinking about these things. This is kind of a provisional view right now. Yeah. I kind of want to keep talking about this morality thing. So you're right. This is a provisional view. Like no one's ever put this forth very robustly, or is that wrong? Well, there are people that have this view. Sarah McGrath, who's at Princeton, has something. At least this is a part of her moral epistemology. So she thinks that we can perceive in some sense what's good and bad, right and wrong. And there are, there are others that have had something like this view. This view kind of goes back to an older view starting, maybe not starting, but at least uh, most famously with the philosopher W.D. Ross. Mm. So this kind of view is sometimes called intuitionism, at least the, the brand that W.D. Ross had. On, its, on one hand, it's a kind of deontological view, so that holds that there are these prima facie duties, which means that there are these duties or obligations that we have, but sometimes they come into conflict with each other and we have to kind of weigh them. So it's not always just obvious what 
we should do. But part of the view had to do with this kind of perception. I don't think W.D. Ross would have used that language himself exactly, although he might sometimes use metaphors that are visual in kind, like a sea, that kind of language. Mm -hmm. But W.D. Ross thought that we had this maybe a special cognitive faculty that is a kind of moral intuition, which can latch on to the moral aspects of the world and give us information about them. And so when we see, say, a child out in the water that's struggling, we just have this moral intuition that they need help and that we should help them. Or when you see the child getting backhanded in the shopping, uh, in, the, in the parking lot of the supermarket, you just see that something wrong is happening. So this idea coming from W.D. Ross has been developed by other people, but it's, it's definitely a live research program right now. There are, there are people that are trying to work this out. I've tried to do some work on this, although I haven't published anything on it. It is an extremely complicated area of philosophy, partly because the literature on perception, setting aside all the moral questions, but just perception in general, is massive. And it's very confused in mm -hmm. some ways, like lots of different jargon gets used so that people are talking past each other. So it's, it's a pretty tricky area to wade into because there's just so much to know and so much to try to, to get a grip on before you can even make any progress. But I do think I find some of the arguments at least compelling, if not convincing. Yeah. So would you say you're more interested in this, like, epistemology side or are you more interested because it seems like there's the metaphysical side where there is this mind independent like morality or you could like we just talked about the moral perception mm -hmm. or the perception of these things is there one area that interests you more or are they just so interwoven that it's just kind of impossible to separate the two no i i i guess my interests in my own research are metaphysical first, probably, and then epistemological second. Metaethics, the area that I work in, has lots to do with philosophy of mind and philosophy of language. You know, like, what are this, what's the semantics for moral terms, for example? But the kinds of problems I focus my attention on are metaphysical and epistemological. So the metaphysical problems have to do with the nature of morality, have to do with the nature of right and wrong, good and bad. One of the things that I'm interested in working on is trying to understand how to characterize the metaphysical commitments of the moral realist. Uh, so there's a sense in which I'm not as interested in the debates between the realists and the anti-realists and trying to settle those disputes. I think they're interesting. And I think they're hard. There are interesting and compelling anti-realist kinds of arguments. But I'm more interested in trying to understand what the realist is committed to in the first place. So many of the debates that I sort of wade into are with other realists trying to figure out what is the view that we think we're defending in the first place. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, and so things that I try to work out is like what is it to be a, a moral property um, what kinds of moral properties would there be if you were a realist? What, would, what kinds of moral properties would you be committed to? Are there moral laws or are there not moral laws, which is a, a big 
debate or maybe law talk is a little misleading um, principles. Are there moral principles or, or not? And that's the kind of thing that I'm sort of interested in, where you could be a realist and think there are principles. You could be a realist and think there are not principles. And there's a question like, what would the principles do if there were such things? Um, if there were moral properties, what would those properties be like? Um, it seems like they're special. That's why we kind of, you know, talk about them by themselves as if there's this like special moral domain. So what is it that makes them special? What is it that makes them normative, meaning they like demand something of us, rather, you know, that there's a, that the table is flat over here, uh, doesn't demand anything special of me, mm-hmm. but that, you know, the child is, is struggling um, and, and doesn't want to drown and it's over there in the water, that does demand something of me. Like, why? What's the, what are the properties and what, what's so special about them? Why do they get to demand things of us? So those are kind of metaphysical questions that I'm interested in. Yeah, that, that is interesting and relevant stuff. Are you working on anything? Like, are you writing a paper on this that you're hoping to get published? Um, some of the papers I'm working on right now have to do with the moral laws and moral principles. So I have a paper I'm working on with a co-author right now that is trying to develop in a very precise, careful way what laws would be in general, but also specifically in application to morality. Um, I have another paper where, incidentally, I give an argument that there are no moral laws. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then I try to get my work my way out of the puzzle that I've created for myself. Um, And so I think, you know, I actually think that there are good reasons to think there might not be moral laws, but that's not to say there aren't moral truths. Um, Sometimes I think that gets confused by people. They think that if there are no moral laws, then there are no moral truths, there are no moral obligations and so forth. I think that we still would have them. My dissertation advisor, Jonathan Dancy, is uh, famous for his view on particularism, which is the view that there are no moral laws or moral principles. And yet Jonathan Dancy would be the first to say that he's a moral realist that mm. there really are things you mm. ought to do and that you ought not to do. And it doesn't matter what you think about it. You really ought to do it or you really ought not to do it. So particularism is not to be confused with a kind of anti-realism. So anyways, yeah, that's kind of some of the stuff I've been doing some research on. What's it like co-authoring a paper? Um, it's good. I have, I've worked on two papers, not two papers, more than two papers, but I've co-authored or worked on papers uh, with more than one person before. And it's been good in the cases that, um, in both, the, both of the co-authors that I've worked with. It's good because you challenge each other and you can ask questions of the other person that they wouldn't have thought of by themselves or they can ask you questions you wouldn't have thought of. So I think it improves the quality of the philosophy, but it's not very common in philosophy to co-author. It's becoming mm-hmm. more common, but it, you know, a lot of papers are single or sole authored. So I, I like I like the experience, although I also like writing my own things. Makes sense. <laughs> this is not really relevant, but I, we've been talking about it with a couple of people. It feels like I'm not sure if this is accurate, but it feels like there are a lot more philosophical papers and not as many like philosophical books that are put out. I don't know if that's true, but do you think that's accurate? Yeah, contemporary philosophy is more of a paper discipline than a book discipline. Some disciplines, I think, I, I, my impression is that 
literature or history, for example, are, are primarily book disciplines, like you got to write the book. Whereas a philosopher could have a, you know, an illustrious career and never write a single book. So yeah, I think that papers are the, the main place where people get work done nowadays, although that's not always been the case. That has not always been the case. Yeah. Do you think that's a good thing or? Oh gosh, that's a great question. I don't know. I think it's some, in some regards, it's not good. I think that there's the discipline of philosophy sort of has grown so that there is a lot of emphasis on publishing. And there are mechanisms that are there to try to provide some quality control so that what's getting published is good. But I think you can get really good philosophy that's not the best kind of philosophy because it's mm. it's really careful, and but it's very nitpicky and it's not conceptually very significant. So I think it kind of incentivizes doing, picking out the, the little teeny pro- problems in philosophy and trying to work out solutions to those rather than trying to think systematically about things. So it's more rare now to find somebody like a Hume or a Kant where they're really system builders, where they're trying to work out a lot of things all at once and make connections between things. And so I think that's unfortunate because I think that Mm -hmm. kind of philosophy is very valuable and helps us get a grip on how the world functions. And so this little kind of nitpicky stuff, while I think it has a place, I, I think it's... It's probably overemphasized. Mm. You know, I've read a few philosophy papers. They weren't books. They were papers that have really, I mean, totally upended my views on things or at least made me think of pretty dramatically different way on a topic. Uh, are there any papers like that for you that you've read? Like very significant to my thinking? Yeah. Oh, there are a lot of papers like that. Um, I think it depends on the area. In metaphysics, a paper that really was significant for me in my thinking was a paper by Jonathan Schaffer. It was a, it's a paper about grounding. It's not, I think it's a great paper, but it's not the best paper on grounding, but it was the paper that made me see its significance. Grounding is an area of philosophy that has to do with metaphysical explanations. That is, what is it that makes something metaphysically the case? And so A grounds B is to say that A makes B the case in some way or constitutes B or something like that. And I, I had encountered grounding a little bit when I was in my master's degree, but I didn't really see what the significance was. All I knew was that I should be careful if I used the term grounding around <laughs> metaphysicians. <laughs> but then my first semester in my PhD program, I was taking a class and we read I mean, it was a class on grounding. That whole class was about grounding. And we read the Jonathan Schaffer paper early in the semester, and it really just made me realize this is this is not only an interesting topic, but it's very important for understanding many of the metaphysical questions that we have about the, the world. What we are really interested in a lot of the time is what makes what or how do things stand to each other and once I saw that, it sort of opened up a new way of approaching many, many philosophical questions and problems that I had thought were of interest but didn't see a path forward. And, and grounding 
is just incredibly illuminating. So that's a paper that I think has been really important. I think uh, not a paper, but a book, the the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals by Kant, Mm. I think was sort of revolutionary for me. I don't really agree with Kant on a lot of things, but I just thought, wow, this is this is philosophy. You know, like <laughs> this is someone who's very, very good at philosophy and raising lots of important issues. This is this is how we we should do be, be doing philosophy. I mean, I, hopefully we we can improve on what Kant has done, but uh, I thought the groundwork for the metaphysics and morals was really important. Yeah, I, I know you're not alone in that. Yeah. Uh, we're going to play a game for a couple minutes here. It's called Overrated or Underrated. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> Zachariah is going to name a philosopher. And you tell us whether you think they're <laughs> Probably overrated. Probably not going to know who it is. I'm like, whoa, this is embarrassing. <laughs> with the PhD. <laughs> <laughs> you tell us whether you think they're overrated or underrated, okay? Okay. We'll start with David Hume. I think probably he's rated just right, which is to say he's rated very highly, and he should be. I think David Hume is a brilliant philosopher. He's pretty much wrong on all his positive views, but he's brilliant. Yeah, okay. Plato. Probably underrated, and that sounds like it's hard to say, but it's probably true. I mean, it's like, can you, you know, Plato's like the Shakespeare of philosophy. Like, could you ever rate Shakespeare highly enough? Probably not. (laughs) So. John Rawls. Huh. <laughs> I, I mean, it kind of depends on who you're talking to. Some people, I think, overrate Rawls. They think he's like God's gift to political philosophy or something, but mm-hmm. actually maybe he is. <laughs> but, yeah, I think Rawls is a really excellent philosopher. So probably probably rated accurately. Okay. Um, you know, overall, I think people think he's a very good philosopher. That's right. And you agree? Yes. Okay. John Stuart Mill. I think overrated and underrated. I think <laughs> so. <laughs> Classic. I only gave two options. It was just overrated or he's, underrated. I think he's overrated for his kind of utilitarian philosophy, which is what most people encounter. Yeah. But, I mean, as a philosopher, he's got so much other stuff that he's written that's really brilliant. His stuff on methodology, his stuff on political liberty and liberalism is really incredible but it's just unfortunate that he was so successful at convincing people that utilitarianism the most <laughs> obviously false moral theory um, was a, a, a good theory something that we should consider as plausible hey man i take that theory seriously all right <laughs> read it peter singer beautiful. all right well even john Stuart mills utilitarianism i think it's beautiful it is beautiful he's an incredible writer yeah. i wish i could write as well as him yeah Frederick Nietzsche. I think it depends on the tradition. I think in contemporary analytic philosophy, underrated. Um, okay. I think Nietzsche is really good. Outside of contemporary analytic philosophy, so in critical theory and in continental philosophy, probably overrated. Why do you say that? Because I think he's not as systematic as people want to believe. I think some of his ideas are really bad. I mean, I, it's not just that I disagree with him, but I think some of the ideas are just bad ideas. Mm. It's too reductivist. You know, it reduces too many things to this kind of will to power sort of idea. Mm -hmm. But, you know, a lot of people don't read much Nietzsche, but I think if you go in, I mean, some of my greatest pleasurable, like, philosophical experiences have been reading Nietzsche. 
Um, He's got this really kind of beautiful aphoristic style. There's just so many nice little insights, you know. So I I think Nietzsche is underrated in analytic philosophy. I guess that's that's what I should really just say. Mm. (laughs) Uh, Bertrand Russell. He's probably rated accurately, uh, which is he's very good. One thing I like about Bertrand Russell is he's honest. I mean, he changed his view a lot. Yeah. (laughs) But I think he... You know, in that, in a sense, he's respect. He's respectable because of that. He he was honest. Like, oh yeah, I had the wrong view. You know, the last, two years ago I had the wrong view. So like, here's me trying to set it straight. Uh, two years later, oh, uh, wrong view. <laughs> but yeah, Bertrand Russell, I think, is brilliant. And I mean, you have to hand it to that guy. He's prolific. So he talked about everything. It's amazing. Jean-Paul Sartre. Oh. <laughs> I think I actually think genuinely overrated. Yeah? Yeah. I think he's a case where it's overrated. <laughs> say say overrated. why. I think he doesn't actually have a great idea. <laughs> Not a single one. Oui, oui. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> again, I don't think this is one of those things where it's just me disagreeing with his ideas. I just think his ideas aren't that interesting. They're not that good. I think he just – this is – a bias that I'm probably wrong about this. Let's be real. I'm probably wrong. But like a lot of French philosophers, I'm sorry. That <laughs> you don't have to be sorry to me. It's okay. I hope no French philosophers <laughs> listen to this. But anyways, I I find them often to be less impressive. It's true. Uh, there, I think there's a, there is a tendency to obscurantism. And I think that he is a good example of a philosopher that tends to obscure things in a way that makes it seem like there's something kind of deep there. And there is, except he didn't, he doesn't get to it. I, you know, mm-hmm. I think that there are questions of that, these existential questions that are important, but I just don't think that he was kind of getting onto them well. I'm going to say they're already kind of underrated, sadly. But what women philosophers would you say are underrated that you think should be appealed to more, I guess. Well, so in historically or contemporary philosophers, because historically it's, I don't frankly know a lot of philosophers yeah. like most, like unfortunately like most philosophers, I don't know a lot of his, historical cases. Uh, but there is one person I will say whose philosophy I think is, it's, it's she's kind of philosophy and science, but is Emily du Chatelet, who... French. Is French. Yeah. French. <laughs> I have to eat my words. Um, she was brilliant. And I think I think she should be one of the core philosophers that we read in any any of these historical surveys, you know. Mm. She should be right alongside with, you know, Kant and Hume and these other philosophers. I think she's really brilliant. I think she's doing interesting, innovative stuff. She's trying to take a kind of Leibnizian um, metaphysic and try to see if there are ways of marrying that to a Newtonian physic. Mm. And, uh, you know, Leibniz and Newton were not each other's favorite people. <laughs> they weren't the, no. each other's biggest fans. But I think she really brilliantly shows that there are insights that we can draw from both and synthesize from both. So Emily Duchatelet. Last one, Karl Marx. Carl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I think Carl's a good guy. Um, I, I think his critical views, sort of his criticisms of capitalism and so forth, are just right on the money. Mm. I think really good. 
his positive views, his metaphysics is so. <laughs> it's. I don't love it. I don't. It's just very confused. I think he's he starts out with this kind of weird account of, of materialism, and it's really hard to get a grip on what he's got going on. And maybe I just don't understand him fully, but he builds up a positive view that just strikes me as deeply flawed and implausible. But the critical view, I think, is just, yeah, right on the money. Well, Dr. Hatterley, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. It's been fun. <laughs>